Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 356 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new Netflix series Love, Death, and Robots, an anthology of animated shorts, many of them based on science fiction stories by authors such as Alistair Reynolds and Peter F. Hamilton. And this will include spoilers for all of season one, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her 12th appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels from Ace, as well as the Nicholas Lenoir series of historical paranormal detective novels from Rock, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. Her historical mystery Murder on Millionaire's Row is out now. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. The next up, we've got Raphael Jordan, making his seventh appearance on the show. He's written over 25 feature films that have premiered on video and cable television, including The Immortal Voyage of Captain Drake, Star Runners, and Vampire Nation. He also co-wrote the new series Salvage Marines, starring Casper Van Dien and Peter Shinkoda. So, Raphael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. And also joining us today is Tom Gerenser, making his fifth appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Realms of Fantasy, and in books such as New Voices in Science Fiction. His nonfiction book, Think Like Google, is available for pre-order, and his short story, All Our Donkeys Were in Vain, appears in the new anthology, The Best of Galaxy's Edge, 2015 to 2017. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be back again. Okay, and as I mentioned, this show, Love, Death, and Robots, is an anthology show, and it was produced partly by uh, David Fincher and Tim Miller. Uh, David Fincher is a very well-known director, and Tim Miller directed Deadpool, and will be directing the upcoming Terminator Dark Fate movie. Um, so, Raphael, since you're our big Hollywood expert here, you want to tell us a little bit about what what sort of expectations did you have going into the show, given that those two were involved with it? They were pretty high. I mean, honestly, just from that alone, I was uh, pretty pretty much sold. So I didn't watch any of the trailers or anything. Um, but the minute they dropped, I was I was on top of it because you know I was I've always been a huge fan of uh, 1981's Heavy Metal and also 1987's Robot Carnival. So I, I thought this was a pretty great synthesis of the two, like with elements of even Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, but I thought, uh, you know, overall, I I really enjoyed the 18 episodes, you know, can't wait for more. Well, it's funny you mentioned Heavy Metal, because actually David Fincher and Tim Miller said that, I think for years, for about 10 years, they were trying to remake Heavy Metal, and, I don't know, couldn't get the rights or, or whatever, and so this is kind of, you know, make it, remaking Heavy Metal without actually remaking Heavy Metal. Yeah, I think they absolutely succeeded in that, you know, essentially Heavy Metal for New Generation. Yeah. Do you want to say about, for people who may not know David Fincher, I mean, he's a very well-known director, but you want to just say about what, what do you think of his uh, oeuvre? Oh, absolutely. Um, David Fincher is honestly one of my very favorite filmmakers uh, ever since the 90s. He's one of the guys that inspired me to actually move to Hollywood. Um, not just Alien 3, which I know is kind of a disavowed film, but still has its moments. But, uh, you know, starting with Seven and then The Game and Fight Club in particular. In 1999, Fight Club just blew me away. I mean, I literally quit my office job and moved to Hollywood in part because of that movie. Also Office Space, I guess. But between the two, <laughs> definitely sealed the deal. Um, so I owe David Fincher a lot. And uh, I, I hear he's tough to work with because he can just be such a perfectionist on set, you know, just demanding dozens of takes you know like he'll make you do 60 takes to say the same two word line but uh i kind of like that kind of crazy <laughs> but you've never uh interacted with him or anything 
I have not personally, no. no. Um, I've had some friends that worked with him on set as stand-ins and whatnot. Um, actually, on his show that never came out, the one a couple years ago, that was supposed to be a retrospective kind of on uh, videology or something. It was supposed to be set in the 80s. I forget what it was called, but too bad it never came out. There's an interesting YouTube video I watched where they compare the original Swedish version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo to the American version that he directed. And the premise of this video is basically that the Swedish one is a well-made movie, um, but the David Fincher one is, you know, that he's an auteur. He takes it to the next level. And so it's sort of an interesting case study in um, sort of exceptional filmmaking as compared to just sort of, you know, uh, absolutely filmmaking. Yeah, there's just something about him stylistically. It always elevates even like mundane material. Like even his lesser films are just uh, masterclasses in filmmaking. And do you know anything about Tim Miller? Is there anything more to say about him that I didn't mention? Actually, um, I never met Tim, but I've met some of his colleagues over at Blur Studios. Um, and I, I thought the whole thing was pretty fascinating, the way they facilitated Deadpool by accidentally leaking that, you know, test footage. I mean, that was pretty clever. That's an all-time Hollywood maneuver there. Because essentially, Deadpool the movie probably wouldn't exist if Tim hadn't done that. Is that like, quote-unquote, accidentally released the footage? or Exactly. <laughs> I mean, basically, I think at this point, everyone knows it wasn't really an accident. But that leaked footage was an overnight viral sensation and gave Fox the confidence they needed to actually make the movie. I mean, Ryan Reynolds has essentially tweeted as much, I'm pretty sure, so. Not not letting anything out of the bag here. I was also just reading on Wikipedia that he did visual effects for some video games like Mass Effect 2 and Star Wars The Old Republic. Mm -hmm. And they've done some, uh, his company over there, Blur, they've made some great promos and, and trailers over the years for some great games. Like, I, I went into the offices once and they showed me a, a commercial that they were doing for Halo 3, I think, at the time, and it was just fantastic. Yeah. All right, well, so let's uh, get Tom in here. So, Tom... What were your expectations going into Love, Death, and Robots? I had zero expectations. Uh, I was out hanging out with a friend and, and our kids, and he, he mentioned that he had, was watching this new show, and he really wanted to really love it, but he felt guilty about loving it, and he couldn't explain why. And I <laughs> I said, well, what's it called? And he said, Love, Death, and Robots. And I said, is it on Netflix? He said, yeah. So I went, yeah, I'll watch it. And uh, you know, 17 episodes later, I was just like, what happened? That was that was a lot of things. It was, it was really exciting. So, um, yeah, no expectations at all, but really pleasantly surprised in a lot of ways and also felt guilty that I liked it, just like my friend. Isn't it 18 episodes? Oh, pardon me. You just But you watched them all, right? There wasn't, like, one that you didn't watch? <laughs> no, yeah, they were, like, crack. I just kept going, oh, that, that, that kind of left me spinning. I'll watch the next one. So And then they were all over, and I was like, what happened? Oh, it's, it's all over now? That's it? <laughs> Yeah. Now, am I the only one who every time I start, I try to say love, death, and robots, I say sex, death, and robots? Is this just yes. me, or is, are yeah. other people having the same issue? I think people probably have that issue after they watch it. <laughs> 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 yeah, I just I feel like maybe it's because of like sex, uh, drugs, and rock and roll or whatever. But yeah, that, I feel like sex. Um, uh, <laughs> now, sex now I'm confusing myself. <laughs> sex, death, and, and robots would be a more accurate. Title, yeah, as Aaron. Yeah, started. there was not a lot of love in that <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. Some, What's love got much. to do with it? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so Tom, so you, so you mentioned, yeah, there's something weird about this with the Netflix. It plays the episodes in different orders for different people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a uh, 
Because I started talking to you. The first thing I did after I watched the first five episodes is I messaged you and I said, have you guys done a show on Love, Death, and Robots yet? And Because uh, I was kind of blown away by the first five episodes. And you said, no, I I haven't. I'll check it out. And uh, And then I read this article the next day that said, well, everybody gets a different first five episodes. And... And then I realized, like, there are some episodes that I watched later that I thought, well, this one isn't really a great episode, but maybe Dave thinks I thought it was because I told him <laughs> it was the first five. So I messaged you back and I was like, hey, they have different episodes. Like, you don't watch the same first five episodes that I do because they have four different running orders that they spread out between all the different viewers. Now, what's interesting about that is I don't think that was the case initially. I think for the first four or five days, it was basically just the default order. And then they implemented that four different varieties thing, um, which is curious because maybe that was on some level a response to some criticisms, you know, about like, you know, I, I, on Twitter, they were talking about like how some of them were a little too violent or a little too uh, sexual right out of the gate. You know, maybe they were just trying to mix it up. Well, but it's... Um, there was a rumor going around that's since been debunked, but it was interesting. There was a rumor going around that your demographic information as a viewer was used to select which of those running orders that they used. Um, Netflix has said that's completely not the case. And for one thing, they don't have that information, but, uh, but, but it's interesting. It kind of, that's kind of a sci-fi concept in and of itself. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, when I heard about the different orders, personally, I was like, that's a bit weird. I'm I'm an 80s kid. And so you you, you have to be very deliberate about how you make the mixtape. <laughs> you know, the, the order is really important. You're creating a mood. And I thought it's kind of weird to chop it up like that. So it's, I, I would love to know why. Well, yeah. So so the order that I watched, the first five were Sunny's Edge, Three Robots, The Witness, Suits, and Sucker of Souls. Did anyone have a different first five that they watched? Yeah, mine was different. Oh, wow. I don't know what the first five were, but I know my, my very first one was uh, one that you guys said you didn't like, which I actually did like. It's not a story, but it's a, but it's, I thought it was very entertaining. It was the one about the refrigerator. I can't remember the, the name of it. I, I like that one too, Ice Age. Yeah. Oh, oh, great. All right, yeah, Ice Age. So that was my very first one. Um, and I also had – what else was – I had the, the day the yogurt took over. They basically put like all the short, really funny slice of life ones up front for me, which is perfect for me because that's what I like. So I, I, I know they don't really have the demographic information, but it was like it was like the perfect first five episodes for me. They don't have the demographic information, but they do have your viewing choices. And that's what I wonder. I wonder if that influenced it. Like if you watch a lot of comedies, maybe you got yep. those first. If yep. you watch some grittier, edgier stuff, maybe you got, I got the same order as you, Dave, um, which is, I think it's like the, it's the macho order <laughs> by, <laughs> by, by and large. Um, but yeah, so I wondered whether it was indeed random completely or whether your previous viewing you know, the algorithm plays a role, the same algorithm that gives you, if you liked this show, you will like this other completely unrelated show. Well done, algorithm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the Pandora algorithm thing or the, uh, it reminds me of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy line where he's like, uh, if you have enjoyed this drink, why not share it with your friends? And he's like, because I want to keep them. Because <laughs> <laughs> I always feel that way whenever Pandora is like, oh, you listen to this, so you want this. And I'm like, no, that's not what I want to hear right now. You don't it's, get it at all. But it's, it's okay. Nothing like, AI is... It's nothing like that. <laughs> What's that? It's nothing like that. It's like my, my brother sent me a screenshot one time. He'd watched the documentary on the, the Fire Music Festival. And his Netflix came up. Since you liked that, you might like Schindler's List. 
was like, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> All right. So there's one other thing I want to say about this show at the outset that I mentioned in the intro is that a lot of the episodes are adapted from published short stories by different science fiction authors. And actually what got me interested in watching this is that I heard that there were two episodes that were based on Alistair Reynolds short stories. And and that was like the main thing that made me want to watch the show. I don't know if I would have watched it if I hadn't heard that. Um, and this is always what I'm saying is exactly what I want is I want TV shows where they just take science fiction short stories and adapt them in an anthology format and so you would think that this would be right up my alley. Um, and I'm going to give this show more of a mixed review, unfortunately. But um, I love the premise and I love that they did this. And, you know, I definitely hope that they do more and that more other people do more. Uh, I would personally have picked probably a lot of different stories. Um, and if anyone wants to, you know, is involved with one of these shows and wants some recommendations on science fiction short stories to adapt, definitely reach out to me or reach out yeah. to our producer, John Joseph Adams, because, you know, we could definitely give you some recommendations. Um, but yeah, so like Tom, you mentioned that it started off with you with the um, some of these short, funny, kind of goofy episodes which I noticed that, I mean, I was thinking while I was watching these, like, oh, I bet Tom would like, would like these. Um, oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying not to say this. I'm trying not to sound insulting, like, oh, Tom would like this. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I noticed that um, Aaron and Raphael and I all had those episodes ranked pretty low. Um, so maybe do you want to just say, uh, like, defend those episodes a little bit? Why did you like some of the, um, you know, like, short funny episodes that that you watched uh, initially sure i i have to say I, I didn't prefer them to the other episodes i definitely liked the uh uh the sunny's edge one was probably my favorite i, I liked the ones with the story better but um but i really enjoyed the short funny ones because i thought they just don't give a crap they're just like we have this little idea and it's really goofy and we're gonna just produce the crap out of it we're gonna make it look so awesome and uh, and it was you know there were fun little ideas. In fact, one of the, the Ice Age one was kind of similar to my uh, uh, intergalactic refrigerator repairman seldom carry cash story. I don't know if you remember that day from Clarion. It was a long time ago. But, yeah, well, well, I was uh, actually thinking the yogurt one was kind of reminding me of your um, chili one, the cosmic chili one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both of those stories were. I was like, I could have written this, and it's cool to see it like done. I wasn't like, oh my gosh, they stole this from me. I was, I was more like, I was more like, oh my gosh, I could have written this, and yet they took this and they made it into something really cool. And I could hear people when I was watching it. I could hear people arguing, but this is not a story. And I was like, I don't care. It's super entertaining. It's like they just have this crazy idea, and they're not necessarily going to develop it with a plot and characters. They're just going to like put it out in front of you. And kind of like visualize all of it, and um, and and we're gonna keep it short and entertaining. And the minute it's gonna, you know, it gets to the point where it's beyond the the length that you wouldn't want it to go to, we're gonna chop it off and show you a new one. And I, and I was, it was kind of almost like an extension of the the famous cat video that we all get addicted to and watch way too much of. It was just like, here's something super entertaining. You're gonna really enjoy this, and then it's gonna be over. And we're gonna show you a different one. And, um, that's, I guess that's why I liked it. I found it, like I said, I, I thought it was like, uh, you know, not that I've done crack, but if I had done crack, <laughs> this is what I imagine it would be like if you could turn it into a TV show. I just, I just couldn't stop wanting to watch the next one. And I couldn't stop being amazed that 
The next one seemed even better than the one before, mm-hmm. and there, and that there were so many of them, and they all see. I don't, I didn't ever looked at how long they were, but they were super short, and um, just totally inventive ideas and beautiful. Like the visuals on them were just gorgeous and stunning, and uh, and then, it, like I said, then it was over, and I was like, oh my gosh, I want more of that. I've I've watched eighteen of these things, and I want more. Yeah, so. you know, to Tom's point, that brings up an interesting question because I was talking with a friend of mine who's an editor, and we were kind of analyzing. We had very different favorites from the list, and we're trying to figure out. You know, at the bottom of it, we both wanted different things from short films, essentially, or short stories. Like I tend to go into them looking for a proof of concept, like what makes me want more. You know, another episode or a continuation or a feature out of you know, it was where she was kind of like she just wanted a complete self-contained story. She found those mm-hmm. the most satisfying. Yeah. Mm. And if I could defend the, the short, funny ones, too, um, I, I think those ones, even though I, my main criticism of those was was not the concept, I just wish they were funnier. I think actually, mm. you know, a little bit more humor could have done it. And for me, some of those explored the more interesting concepts. Um, some of the ones that I, I thought were really well done, um, like Sunny's Edge, for example, and and you know, some of them are older stories, so take this with a grain of salt. But I think a lot of them went over really well-tread ground. And in terms of completely original ideas, you can't you can't argue that sentient yogurt isn't up there. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, whether you think that's that's a story that you want to hear, it's it's definitely um, a little bit more exploratory than than some of the episodes. Um, mm-hmm. But my overall reaction was like was like you, Dave. There were I, I thought it was a, a really mixed bag, and yeah, well, there, well, were, let, there were things I loved about it, though, and and it was gorgeous. Yeah, There's well, no let me denying. speak to the point about the well-trod ground because you know, for example, in that Ice Age story, it's based on a Michael Swanwick story that I think was from the '80s, um, and maybe when it was published, it was more fresh. But uh, this is an idea of you know this this couple has just moved into an apartment and they find this sort of microcosmic civilization in their freezer. And I mean, this is an idea that's basically, but it was in Men in Black. Uh, it's been, it was in The Simpsons. Uh, mm-hmm. It was done in uh, Rick and Morty more recently. And um, all of those are better, in my opinion, than this. Because so, they're funnier. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, better and funnier. Um, and so it's, it's not clear to me why, you know, out of all the stories in the world that you could pick to adapt, you know, why you would, would have picked this one necessarily. Sure. Well, also, it just didn't seem to fit to me because it wasn't really animation. I mean, I know part of it yeah. was, but it was mostly live action. So I, I would have cut it just based on that alone. It is interesting that there was just the one live action. Um, and I, I was kind of wondering why that was. And I, I just kind of defaulted to maybe it's a question of budget. And, and so the others had a much broader scope in terms of what was required from the special effects department. Um, mm. but maybe that has nothing to do with it at all. But one of the things that I thought was a huge strength of the show was not just the fact that the visuals were brilliantly executed, but the diversity in the visuals and the very, very different styles of animation from one episode to the next. And you had everything from the hyper real to the kind of heavily stylized to anime to the kind of moving comic book. And some of them I liked better than others, but it was really interesting to see sort of which style of animation they matched with. Which story? Absolutely. It was a really nice uh, array of different styles, for sure. Well, yeah, let me talk to you about the budget. So I watched a, an interview with Tim Miller, and he said that, yeah, that they, they basically they gave each animation studio sort of a script, and they were free to 
um, expand on it if they wanted or whatever. But they, they said, you know, here's the budget we have for this episode. Can you do it for this budget? And he said that every animation studio went above and beyond, you know, did more animation than they were really being paid for because they wanted to, you know, show off what they can do and, and so on. But yeah. um, I, I really think that the um, the budget per episode was was not sufficient for a lot of these things. I mean, a, a lot of the episodes, it just got to the end and I was just kind of like, wait, that's it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure that a lot of these studios did the best they could with, the, you know, with the practical constraints that they were working under. But just from a storytelling perspective, I thought a lot of these episodes, you know, just did not have a emotionally satisfying conclusion. Um, and I don't, does anyone disagree with that? No, no, I wouldn't disagree with that. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't. I didn't notice that each one had an emotionally satisfying conclusion. Some of them definitely did, but I think most of them didn't. But I wasn't really disappointed by that. That wasn't um I mean I mean I guess it would have been nice, you know, if if they had all had kind of the gravity of of uh Sunny's Edge, but uh but I didn't mind it. I, like I said I was super entertained by all of them, so. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing per se, but I also never found it to be a negative. Like I there were I mean, to varying degrees, I enjoyed all of them. There were none that offended me or really disappointed me. I just, you know, I really loved some and I just enjoyed others. Yeah. Mm. See, some definitely offended me. (laughs) Some disappointed me. Um, And to some degree, it's down to to not feeling like there was a satisfying story in some of them. Uh, But to me, a lot of them just didn't push the envelope very far, I thought. Um, And... Yeah, and the and the ones that that did um, have more dramatic heft achieved it in some fairly obvious ways and kind of almost lazy, dare I say, lazy ways. So you know, I I think yeah, there were some that that there was not a single one that I was like, I want to see a, a movie out of this. There were a couple that I really really enjoyed, um, a bunch that I thought were pretty good. And and one that made me furious. <laughs> well, we, we'll we'll get to that. But so I mean, I j- just overall, I I I, I kind of wish that they had just taken the budget that they had and made you know taken the six or eight strongest premises and and you know made them you know because because Tom was saying these are short. I mean, some of them are as short as I think around six minutes. Yeah. Uh, and the longest are I th- I think no longer than seventeen minutes. And I, I personally th- would have liked to see maybe six or eight episodes that were more in the sort of 20 to 25 minute range. Um, but so, so Aaron says that she wouldn't like to see these expanded into movies. But um, uh, Raphael, you said that there were a bunch that you would like to see, right? Why don't you talk about that? Sure. Um, yeah, I, there was about a half dozen that really did leave me wanting more. Um, Beyond the Aquila Rift kind of blew me away. I mean, that's probably just my favorite thing I've seen feature or short film period in a while um and i think alistair reynolds actually had two of my favorite ones i mean he was the mvp of this whole thing because zima blue was great too in a totally different way just really kind of cerebral and interesting plot twist i mean they actually both had interesting plot twists and when we get to akila riff specifically we can go more into that but um i thought you know just uh suits really appealed to me on kind of a starship troopers level like the way starship troopers was actually written you know with the the suits fighting bugs basically so you know that didn't have a whole lot of story or emotion per se but i just thought it was really well executed and entertaining um so i would want to see more of it actually 
little neat Easter egg. It was connected to the same world as Zima Blue. It was the same planet, the one that he painted the rings for. Anyway, I'm rambling. Um, <laughs> Lucky 13, I thought, would make a great movie also. I loved that one. And um, I guess that kind of just speaks to my military sci-fi sensibilities. Like, it left me wanting a lot more because it just felt like an act of a much bigger story. Well, right. So I definitely agree that, I mean, and no, no big surprise coming from me, but I thought the three strongest stories were the two Alistair Reynolds adaptations and the Peter F. Hamilton adaptation. Um, those were my favorites by a, a wide margin here. Um, and um, you see, see, Aaron, you mentioned that in your notes that there were a bunch of that sort of military science fiction was a big theme of this uh, season. Um, you want to talk mm -hmm. more about that? Yeah, I mean, I I went through um, after I'd watched the the whole series and kind of um, I, I just I don't usually do this, but kind of a, did a trend analysis across the episodes. And, and I should say that um, I didn't really give an opening spiel about about what I thought of it, but um, in general, the criticisms that I have are criticisms of the show as an anthology, as a body of work as opposed to criticisms of, of the individual standalone stories. There were a couple of stories that I thought were deeply flawed or, or just not that great, but, but that's to be expected in an anthology for me. I, I don't think I've ever read an anthology where all every single short story is my cup of tea and that's fine. Um, my criticisms were more about some of the trends that I perceived and the patterns um, across, across the stories. And so um, I went in and kind of did a, a statistical check to see whether what I was perceiving was actually the case or if I was just kind of having an emotional reaction or whatever. Anyway, that's just a lot of background to say one of the things that I did was try to look at, I had a perception that there was a lot of rah-rah military um, episodes. Um, and I, and I, and I ran the numbers on it. Um, and I will admit that the numbers that I ran, um, it wasn't as prevalent as I had perceived it to be, but it was nevertheless fairly prevalent um, I, I don't, what, what was the number that I came up with in the end? Oh yeah, 33%. So a solid third, our, our military sci-fi, which um, it might not sound like a lot, but on the other hand, when you think about the diversity of what's represented across those 18 episodes, it actually is a pretty, I mean, that's the, the, the hard backbone of this, which is not surprising when you think about who's involved, really. Well, right. And you mentioned that, you know, that we both got the macho, what you described as the macho order. Yeah. And I mean, as an adaptation, sort of a spiritual adaptation of heavy metal, I mean, this is sort of like a show with a very male vibe to it. Uh, <laughs> do you, I assume you don't disagree with that? I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Um, yeah. To the point, <laughs> there was actually, you know, I've, I've read a lot of, of criticism of, of genre fiction where certain marginalized groups say this, this feels like I'm not the intended audience for this. And, you know, that, 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 that feels strange and it makes you feel like an outsider. I can honestly say that this is one of the most dramatic examples of that for me as a viewer. There were multiple times when I was watching this where I was like, this is, this is not for me. I am not the intended audience for this. Um, and it's a strange feeling and not a pleasant one. I wonder, you know, one of Netflix's, I assume it was, I think it was pretty successful was Altered Carbon, which has a very like teenage, I mean, I liked it a lot, but it has a very sort of teenage boy kind of um, aesthetic to it. Um, you know, like lots, lots of tits, lots of gun violence and so on. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of wonder if, um, you know, Netflix kind of looked at that and said, well, that did all right. That, you know, that's the style of science fiction that seems to be working for us here on Netflix. Let's, uh, you know, and, and that sort of played into them green lighting something like uh, Love, Death and Robots. Yeah. And that for me was a big disappointment for it because, you know, there's this, this toxic fiction out there that, that women don't like sci-fi, that girls don't like sci-fi. And it, it's just, it's not true, but you see almost that kind of, well, since women don't like sci-fi anyways, we have, we have carte blanche to curate it in this way. And I would just love to see a season two of this show where they did a better job of representing the genre and did a better job of representing humanity, which is, I feel like is one of the the fundamental jobs of science fiction. Um, and, and they, I would like to see them, yeah, spend a little more time thinking about why they've made the editorial choices they've made in choosing the stories that they've chosen. It's interesting, Aaron, when you're talking about perception, because my perception was that there was about an equal amount of male and female nudity. And mm-hmm. then when you like actually broke down the numbers, I was like, wow, my, uh, my impressions are completely, <laughs> are completely off. Um, and it's not just you, like, I think I think because we're we're a lot less sensitized to seeing male frontal nudity, we notice it a lot more. But uh, but yeah, two two naked dudes, and one of them wasn't even in a sexualized context at all. One of them, was, you know, the one in the dump. There, that wasn't sexy. <laughs> I think you're di- really? you're discounting really? you're discounting <laughs> naked Dracula. <laughs> oh yeah. Mm, there there was true. some Dracula dong very briefly. I did not I did not count alien dong, robot dong, or or uh, undead vampire dong. That's true. Rated R for mild language and Dracula dong. <laughs> what did you think, Aaron? Since I know you you know you um worked overseas with the UN, I was just curious what you thought specifically of the um the werewolves in Afghanistan episode. I liked it. Um, I, being, being the pedant that I am, I was irritated by the music choice. I'm like, this isn't the Middle East kids. But anyway, um, the, I thought the episode was, was actually pretty good. I liked it. Um, I, for some reason got really obsessed with the way his eyes flashed like a predator at night. It's a small detail, but I really liked it. Um, I thought it was fine. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. It's military sci-fi. It's just, it was a very like... Hoo-ah, you know. <laughs> yeah. How about uh, Tom? What'd you think of the of that episode, or just any of the military sci-fi uh, in the show? I mean, I, like I said, I liked all of it. Um, I liked that episode quite a lot. I thought it was really clever. It was a cool idea of uh, having where there's real real werewolves, but we're going to use them as warriors. Um, I thought that was nifty, but I uh, but I really I I uh, I really resonate with what Aaron is saying about how it's there's a lot of teen boy to it like you to this this whole show is like targeted straight at teen boys or or 50 year old men who used to be teen boys uh like myself um because I thought you know uh you mentioned heavy metal and what I remember when I was I don't know 17 years old I absolutely loved that I mean I I think I owned a copy and watched it over and over and over again and now looking back on it, I'm like embarrassed that I liked it so much because it's, you know, it's all these adolescent fantasies. Um, but, uh, when I first heard about the show, my friend Jay, he was the one I told you about. He said, you got to watch this. And he said, I feel really guilty about watching it. And I said, well, why? And, uh, he said, well, you just have to watch it. But he said, it's, it's just got so much, uh, it's so sexist. He said, it's so cool, 
but at the same time, it's so sexist. And I watched the first few episodes, and I said, I haven't seen anything sexist here. What's sexist about yogurt? (laughs) I know, exactly. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, like, you didn't notice that in the first episode? And I was like, no, there's nothing sexist in the first episode. (laughs) Not realizing at the time that I was watching a different first episode than he was. But uh, then I watched some more of the episodes, and I was okay. I was like, okay, there's a lot of nudity. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of objectification of women. Um, but uh, but I was like, you know, it's, it's kind of like heavy metal. I was like, I don't know that it, you know, it's, it's sort of like Spinal Tap. It's sexy, but I don't know that it's sexist uh, at first. And then and then he said, oh really? What did Kathy think of it? And I said, are you kidding? Kathy didn't know I watched this. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then he laughed and said, exactly. That's my point. So, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't know if it speaks to the fact that I, you know, live and work in Hollywood or maybe that's why I do, but, um, I guess I'm kind of the contrarian on this point. I, well, for starters, I, I have zero shame saying that I love heavy metal from 1981. I mean, I, I saw a screening of it just a year ago when they played it at the new Bev. And I think like, you know, sure. Like the, the demographic is teenagers in the same sense that teenagers are the demographic for everything from Marvel movies to Star Wars movies to new music. But at the same time, I think anyone, you know, 10 to 50 is eating this stuff up because, uh, I don't know. I mean, my friends and I enjoyed all of them and we're all in our twenties, thirties and forties. So I, you know, I thought, and I don't know, you know, <laughs> not to go on a tangent, but I definitely think like that's overstating it to some degree. Like I had no real issues with it thematically on that level. Well, so Raphael, you watched it with a whole bunch of people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what was the gender breakdown of, of that group? Probably like well, around half and half, but maybe like 55, 45 men, women. Uh-huh. And the women that you watched it with liked it? or? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I... I had, it's almost like, interestingly enough, I had more male friends voice concerns about like the sexism than women. Um, So I don't know if that's just people being kind of like hypersensitive to it. But yeah, I definitely had a lot of female friends that loved it. But I had like some male friends that expressed concern over, you know, Sonny's Edge and The Witness, especially how they kind of started off the whole thing, at least for a lot of people. Yeah. I should say uh, that I don't think there's anything uh, fundamentally incompatible about enjoying it and noticing that it's sexist. Uh, And if you want to know what it's like to live as a woman, you go through life noticing things that are sexist and just, you know, deciding to to like it anyway or go with it anyway most of the time. So, you know, it's you you can you can still enjoy it. Um, And I, you know, Sunny's Edge is a good example of one that, you know, I, I had issues with, but at the same time, it was still one of the strongest ones, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, let's let's get to Sunny's Edge in a bit because that that I think was one of my favorites. But um, uh, Aaron, you the one you hated, you, I think you you told us was the witness. Yeah. And um, Raphael, you you had that listed as sort of good or something, right? Do you want to say what did you um what did you like about that episode? Uh, um, I had that one in my middle tier. You know, it wasn't superlative, but um, I just thought it was gorgeous aesthetically. I mean, it was just really nicely rendered, and uh, I liked kind of the ambiguity of the ending. But at the same time, I, you know, I was not unaware of the of the current of criticisms on Twitter about the sexism in a couple of these, and I know that one was ruffling some feathers. And I don't, you know, I see why. I mean, there's no reason why she has to be basically naked the whole time <laughs> so yeah well, well so the, the the plot is that there's this 
let's see if I remember. There, there's a woman. Somehow she 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 looks over across an alleyway through a window and sees a guy murdering uh-huh. a clone of herself. Is that right? And then he chases her. Right, and seemingly it all comes full circle. After he chases her the entire time, she kills him, and then she looks out the window, and he's still alive across the alleyway looking at her, and he starts to run, and she chases him. Um, so a lot of people interpreted that as essentially just they're stuck in a time loop. But there were some little hints throughout the thing, because, you know, I watched some analysis videos on YouTube, um, that basically she had been the killer all along was an alternate theory, because when he's chasing her, um, the animation switches for a few frames, and he becomes a, a demon, basically. And there were some billboards in the background saying, like, the day she went crazy. So I guess an alternate take was that she has was essentially being chased by her own demons. I'm not sure, though. I guess the, I mean, the visuals I, I can agree were were well done. I think it was the same director as um, Spider Man Into the Spider Verse. I think I saw Oh, interesting. That. Um, but uh, but yeah, and and then in the middle in the middle of this, she does doesn't she go to like a sex club and does like a strip dance or something? A yeah, strip it's, it's, dance. <laughs> it was definitely the most um, the most R rated out of any of them. It was kind of like out of the Wachowskis' mind. I don't know, like that whole sequence. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it seems like it had no plot to me, but um, I didn't. Maybe, maybe if I went back and watched it, I would pick up on some of the stuff that you were talking about. Um, but, I definitely think it was, like, not one of the better efforts, but it was just visually appealing, you know. It, it was nice to look at, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the visuals, I thought, just of the show overall were well done. I mean, I, I did think, I did feel like, um, you know, a lot of the, sh- the episodes, they kind of looked like video game trailers, you know, like a trailer for... Uh, Star Wars The Old Republic or Mass Effect or something. Um, and I guess that I, I personally gravitated to some of the episodes that had a, what I would say a more sort of distinctive aesthetic. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, my, my favorite episode was uh, Zima Blue. Um, and, Very stylized. And I thought, yeah, I, I thought for one thing it had the most interesting visual aesthetic, that it wasn't like a video game trailer and it wasn't like an anime movie and it wasn't like a Pixar movie. It had mm-hmm. its own, you know, unique look. Um, but so, yeah, so, so I said my, my three favorites were, uh, Beyond the Aquila Rift, Seema Blue, and Sunny's Edge. Um, does anyone disagree? I know Aaron, Aaron right? You, you don't agree that those were the three best, right? Um, you're, you're in my wheelhouse for sure. Um, I, I thought Zima Blue was, was fantastic. Um, I, I really liked Good Hunting, uh, in spite of, uh, just to go back to my point earlier, in spite of the fact that I think, uh, rape as a motivating factor is, can we just have a moratorium on that for five seconds? But, but I actually, that was one of my favorites. Um, I, I really liked that one. I, I think the ones that were most effective for me, um, and I think this goes back to what I like best about shape, shapeshifters is the ones where, you know, robots and lasers is fine, but if I don't have any emotional connection to any of the characters, then it's hard to care as much. Whereas Aquila Rift and Zima Blue and, and Shapeshifters and some of these ones, they, they had, and, and, and good hunting. There, there was emotional gravitas to them. There was actually, there were personal stakes for the characters that you could feel beyond just shooting things. Uh, same with, with Lucky 13 was another one where I felt like it, it was centered on, on the, the humans or or the protagonists as opposed to centered on the set piece battle scenes. Um, and so those were, those were some of my favorites. Well, right. So let's, let's talk about rape as a 
character motivator because I, I'm sort of torn on this because I did I liked Sonny's Edge a lot and I thought the twist at the end was totally brilliant. Um, I'll just say quickly the the premise of this is that they're they do these sort of like cage fights with genetically engineered monsters and then they have pilots who are sort of telepathically linked to the monsters controlling them. And then um, the twist at the end, and then, and then so the, the main character, she always wins all her fights, and the question is why. And you find out at the end is that she um, she had been attacked at some point in the past, and they'd had to transfer her brain into her monster. And so she's fighting for her life every time she's in the ring, and that you know sort of saves her at the end. I, I, I thought that was absolutely fantastic. And I think that, you know, they set it up that, you know, initially... It's set up that she had been when she was attacked, she was raped and that the reason she wins all her fights is because she's taking revenge in her mind on the men who had uh, abused her. And I thought that the way that that was handled or the way it was presented in the story was really, really ham fisted and uncomfortable to watch. Um, But from a plot perspective, it makes a lot of sense and it sets up everything that you need to set up for the big payoff at the end of the story. And I don't... immediately see any way to rewrite the story, you know, uh, and get rid of that and still have it work. But um, I don't know what you think about that. I I do. Um, but I think this is a really good example of the sort of the phenomenon that I was referring to earlier, where it's not so much an issue with any of these things as a standalone. And you can make a case in both Good Hunting and um, Sunny's Edge, which again, were two of the strongest ones, in my opinion, you could make a case that, you know, although I think that traumatic background could have been um, a different type of trauma, um, it, it's not that it's a problem as such. It's that this is always the go-to. This is the go-to backstory every time you need a, a woman who's wrestling with demons. And it's just... It's just lazy, I think, at this point. And again, this isn't a criticism specifically of, of these standalone stories, more that we have two with, within an 18-episode arc that use exactly the same plot device. And I just think it's kind of an eloquent illustration of when you when you have people from – when you have women or, or, or people from marginalized groups talking about how – how things are represented in genre fiction, it's its often not targeted at a specific book or a specific story. It's more, why is this the universe of options that we have? And we keep getting presented the, the same things in the same way over and over and over, and it becomes overwhelming at a certain point. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a totally fair point. Um, does anyone have anything else they want to say about that uh, the episode Sunny's Edge, just on, on any on any subject? No, I I just agree that I I really loved it like you did, Dave. I thought it was uh, definitely one of the stronger ones, and and it was, yeah. I did I did notice the same thing as well that the rape angle was was uncomfortable, uh, the way they handled it, kind of ham fisted, but but uh, still love the episode for sure. Yeah, I guess I mean the monsters I thought were amazing, and the monster fought, fight I thought was was just visually spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, Raphael, anything you want to say about? Sunny's Edge? Um, no, I, I agree with everything that's been said pretty much, um, especially to Aaron's point about, like, you know, the sum total, like, the fact it's not just, you know, one episode here or there, but more than one. So I get that. And can I 
can I just say, like, at, at a certain point, another thing that becomes exhausting is is having to be the voice that always says this stuff. Like, I, I would, I would like love <laughs> not having to point out that eighty nine percent of these episodes were written by dudes. You know, like it, it would just, it would be nice if if I if I didn't really feel like, yeah, that these things needed to be brought up and they needed to be brought up by me. What was the, what were the 11% that weren't? The, the two, the two that weren't? Yeah. Uh, Sucker of Souls and Helping Hand. So of the handful of the episodes that actually had a woman, um, as a main character, like a main protagonist, uh, uh, Helping Hand being the, the, the one that was, that one reminded me a lot of Gravity, actually. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was written by Claudine Griggs, and Sucker of Souls was uh, written by Kristen Cross. I believe that um, Helping Hand, originally, the story originally appeared in uh, a special issue of Lightspeed Magazine called Queers Destroy Science Fiction. Yeah. That was published by our uh, our um, producer, John Joseph Adams. So what did you yep. think, what did you think, Aaron, of those uh, of those episodes? Um, I didn't really care for Sucker of Souls myself. Uh, I, I liked the animation, but I, I just, the, the idea unfortunately felt a bit tired to me. Um, but, uh, Helping Hand I liked. I just, I wish I had a better grasp of physics because I just totally do, didn't buy the, the last sequence at all. Um, mm-hmm. but I might be wrong about that. Um, so the, the, the concept of helping hand very much like gravity. Um, it's, it's a woman alone in space and she's doing some kind of repair on a satellite or whatever. She gets a piece of debris in her suit and she gets knocked uh, um, away from the, the satellite or the, whatever she's repairing and she has no maneuverability and she's going to drift in space and die. And her oxygen tank has a limited amount left and there's no one to rescue her. So she has to figure out how to rescue herself. And the way she does it, um, is, and this part I thought was pretty cool. She, she takes off the, the, the gauntlet part, the big sort of arm and, um, glove of her spacesuit. And, and this is obviously horrible because she immediately, you know, her flesh freezes and it's horribly painful. And she uses that. She chucks it and uses the momentum she generates by chucking it to send herself floating back toward the satellite. And that part, and again, I have, very limited grasp of physics in space. Um, that part I kind of bought because I could see that where there might be enough resistance generated by the, throwing a closed object, a sealed object, um, away from oneself that you could sort of propel yourself backwards. But what she ends up, she, so she misses the satellite, which is a bummer, and she's flying in the other direction. And what she decides to do is rip off her frozen arm and then throw that and use that mm-hmm. as the way to propel herself back. And in the first instance, uh, she seems extremely strong to be able to to snap off that arm. Not only does she not pass out, but just the physical act of doing it. I was like, hmm, I wonder. But also, I just don't, the arm is quite aerodynamic, I feel. And I just don't know that it would generate enough resistance to push you anywhere. Well, but there's there's no air in space, so it's not I, a question of the aerodynamics. It's I know. I just don't know the correct term. <laughs> she she, you're doing it to generate a counterforce, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could for you, every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Could you could you do that with an arm? Would that generate enough of a counterforce? I don't yeah. know. I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, like in science fiction, they'll often you you'll get people 
going through zero gravity with very small, th- you know, like they'll open a can of soda or something, mm-hmm. and that'll act as a jet. I don't know. I don't actually know exactly how much mass you need to uh, to propel a person. Um, it would make her ballistic. The question is to what degree, and and to right. that I can't answer. So maybe like they overdramatized how how fast it would move her. I'm not sure, but. It probably would have at least gotten her going in the right direction. I guess the question is, would it have been fast enough based on the speed of the satellite? Hmm. Right. It's also an interesting issue, which she wouldn't have passed out because there, she would have no blood loss because the arm was frozen and she wasn't losing any blood when she ripped it off. Oh, no, I was and, just thinking about from the pain. A lot of people pass out from extreme pain. But is she feeling that if it's... I don't she know if, she, if all I the nerves... I think so. Gone. <laughs> she wouldn't have any nerves nerve any live nerves in that frozen solid arm i wouldn't think i was more wondering if you could actually break an an arm bone i guess i mean i, I know if you like dip like a, a rose we used to dip flowers in liquid nitrogen my dad uh had a laboratory and we used to dip like flowers in it and you could shatter them um so maybe you could break an arm that was frozen but i was just thinking like those bones would be really hard like those are really tough to break um yeah, see, and I yeah. was thinking of the muscle. I was thinking of like a greenwood versus drywood thing. I could see the bones being extremely brittle under a, like a nitroglycerin kind of treatment, but maybe the muscles less so. But I got to say, I still mm-hmm. think it would it would hurt like crazy because part of the arm is frozen, but not the whole thing. And those parts are attached to the parts she's ripping off. So I yeah. I still yeah. think the nerves, I think it would be a bummer. I feel like we should move on from this because I feel like half our <laughs> listeners probably know more about this than we do and are just like screaming at their. That's probably <laughs> true. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right it's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I love when sci-fi makes you wonder about the science. I mean, it, it superficially reminds me of other scenes in other movies, like Jason X, where you know <laughs> uh, the liquid nitrogen makes the girl's head shatter, or in Snowpiercer, where the guy's arm shatters because it's been out in the extreme cold or something. If it happened in Jason X, I'm going to assume it's pretty scientifically sound. <laughs> sure, that works. <laughs> um, but but yeah, uh, let's let's move on because I, I I do want to talk about as I said what I thought were my favorite stories. So um, let's talk then about uh, Beyond the Aquila Rift. Uh, as I said, this is another adaptation of an Alistair Reynolds story. And so what happens in this story is that they have these uh, this sort of a hyperspace um, you know shipping you know, network. And um, there's a three-person crew and the main character wakes up and is told that there was a routing error and they, and he's like way off course. And, um, and there's this attractive woman who he had hooked up with on a previous um, expedition. And she sort of slowly reveals to him that, yeah, that first he's off course and then, oh, he was actually way more off course than she first told him. And then like, wait, is any of this real? And then she turns out to be an alien. Um, I thought this was pretty effective. I mean, I was sort of expecting more since it was based on an Alistair Reynolds story and I actually went back and read the Alistair Reynolds story. And I think the story makes way more sense than the episode does. And again, I think this is just time. I think that, you know, they tried to cram a lot of stuff into 17 minutes. And I think it works pretty well, but I think it works a lot better in the short story where uh, it builds up the tension and introduces the mysteries. And particularly the thing, I, the, the big thing that the story does, um, that the episode doesn't, is that it introduces the concept of people waking up and having their memories erased and being put back to sleep over and over again. 
it introduces that in the first scene, so it doesn't mm. come out of nowhere at the end. Um, but how right. about Raphael? What do you think of Beyond the Aquila Rift? Well, you know, that's interesting that you read the short story. I'd really, uh, I'm going to have to make that a priority because um, to me, it was really fascinating. I, I loved it pretty much on every level. But the one thing that really intrigued me was the ambiguity of the, um, of the creature, basically. And I was discussing this with a bunch of friends. Like, was she malicious or evil? Or was she actually, you know, because I feel like they kind of straddled the line there. Um, she seems sincere and genuine when she says, Tom, I do care. I'm really just trying to, like, essentially limit your suffering. But at the same time, there was kind of an ominous element, especially with the edit at the end where it switches back to kind of like the the, the the grim reality of it all. And she did seem to be feeding off his life force, almost keeping him artificially alive. So it, it makes me wonder, like, was she ensnaring these travelers on purpose or was she simply taking advantage of a situation? Like, were they really accidentally winding up there and she was kind of like it was mutually beneficial like she was feeding off them but also giving them the simulation to make their lives better i don't know it was an, it was an interesting one tom what'd you think of this episode i liked it i, I like what Raphael just said about it i uh i think that it would have been maybe a more effective episode if they had kind of played that angle up a little bit like uh like kind of tried to just sort of overtly said like is she is she evil or is she really helping? And then kind of left you guessing and wondering about it at the end because I didn't, I sort of did get that experience, I guess. I guess I kept wondering like, well, is she really trying to help him or is she not? But I didn't feel like it was really part of the story. I felt like it was just something that was kind of left unresolved that, um, that they didn't really try for necessarily. Yeah. yeah it was interesting because it was almost kind of leaning you towards believing her that she was essentially trying to help in whatever way she could and yet the final few seconds kind of left it on a very ominous tone um, with the sound design and, and the last frame so it made me wonder but but yeah the whole thing i guess i just i'm a sucker for any kind of lost in space story yeah. i mean just the the premise there where Essentially, you know, they've got this jump gate system or whatever the heck it is, but, you know, a certain amount of travelers just end up, like, way outside the galaxy with no hope of getting back. It's like, at that point, is she acting in a malevolent way or not? So, I don't know. You know, it, it just left me wanting more, so I'm going to have to read this short story. Yeah, I think I'd like to read the short story, too, now that you say that, because, I mean, I also had questions. I I, I quite liked it, um, I, and I thought, I mean, this is a good example. There's lots of boobs. I had no problem with the boobs in this episode. It's the sex between two consenting adults. It's fairly graphic. Um, and, and that's fine. I had no issue with those boobs. Um, <laughs> so, um, and you know, we got, we got a little nice male bum too. So that's always nice. Um, but no, my, my questions. Well, this so one let me just, like, let me just, sorry. Let me just say, I mean, I also think you're it stopping works me better at the bum. This... <laughs> <laughs> uh, comment on this bum can we talk about the bum more i'm happy to no no let me just i just want to say that i mean i think part of the reason that this graphic sex scene works better here is because it's not just like a random sex scene thrown into an exactly. unrelated story thank you, you know like the, the, the fact that he's having awesome sex is like the central you know emotional movement of the story at this port part so it kind of it kind of works that's the point and that's the difference between objectification and nudity 
nudity is fine if it makes sense, if it's in the context of the story, the sex scene makes sense in this story. Whereas there's no reason for, for Murder Girl to be, uh, you know, full frontal gyrating in front of everybody for the entire, it's completely <laughs> irrelevant to the story. Um, anyways, not to go back to that. So for, for Akila Rift, but my question was, if the spider lady had the ability to create a matrix style simulation, why wasn't she better at it? Because I didn't really understand how, and, and I think this is maybe something to do with, and to go back to what I said about wanting to read the story. One of the, the other criticisms is that you don't, I like a good mystery. I mean, I'm a mystery author. And one of the things you want with a good mystery is little breadcrumbs that kind of ratchet up the tension and make you question more and more as it goes on. And they didn't really do that so much here. And I think that would have maybe helped answer the question of, of why, like, why are there flaws in this simulation? Like, for example, I, if when we see the real him and the real situation, he's much older, he's emaciated, he looks terrible. But yeah. I wasn't clear on that earlier scene where they try for the second time to wake up his colleague. Was that real or was that part of the simulation? Was that a previous memory or was it part of the simulation? Because if it was part of the simulation, why did it happen at all? That's a good question. I, I was wondering kind of the same thing. Like, are they supposedly sharing one big simulation? Like, is it a shared experience? Exactly. Or do they each have their own matrix? No, but that's an actual, I hadn't even thought about that, but that's a really good point because you see when he's in reality that she's dead. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Why couldn't she just program the simulated girl to just do whatever would calm him the most? Exactly. Right? Well, but was, she, was she dead or was she just unconscious in a simulation? It was kind of hard to tell. I think she was dead, but either way, I mean, I, I suspect that the interpretation we're supposed to have is that that was a previous attempt to wake her up and it didn't work. And, and that, at that point, she was being introduced into his simulation. Um, and then, but, but that, like, it wasn't a linear timeline. So his memory of that was from actually from a long time ago. I'm not sure if I'm expressing that correctly, but I think it's supposed to be that that was part of his simulation, but she wasn't entirely being simmed, obviously, because she could see the spider lady, I guess. Do, do you remember the scene where so yeah. she, she wakes up and she's like, can't you see her? Can't you see her? Which if she's seeing the real thing, uh, then I feel like her reaction was somewhat muted. <laughs> right. <laughs> She's like, it's not like, that's not Sherry, it's Terry. It's like, no, that's not this woman that you're sleeping with. It's a giant spider. Yeah, I, yeah, I feel okay. I feel like it just doesn't really make any sense. I mean, particularly having re if you read the story and then go back and watch the episode, you see what unbelievably tight time constraints they were under to fit everything in. And I feel like they were just doing what, like, anything they could do to like get to the end of the story in 17 minutes. Mm. And I don't mm. think there are answers to those. My, my suspicion now, is that there is not an answer to that question. Now here's the thing. Um, it's kind of like a overall worldview of this sort of thing. I was, I was talking about um, Jordan Peele in the movie us recently. And trust me, this will relate, but like in the twilight zone. And I think like short stories and short film, you know, essentially 22 minutes and under, you can get away with a lot. Like something doesn't have to make sense. Like yeah. a great twit, you know, like a lot of those Twilight Zone episodes are out of limits. They don't really make sense, but they kind of just sell you on that wow twist at the end where you don't have to like sit there and figure it out. Um, so I think like, you know, if it was a feature film, they would have to sort all this stuff out, obviously, and it would need to make sense. But sometimes with a short film, I think you can get away with it. 
I totally agree with that. Um, and I think it, I, sometimes those questions are actually fun, those unresolved questions. And I, and I think that that goes back to what I was saying about some of them just kind of lacking the punch. If, if all you're hanging your hat on is the concept, then the concept needs to be really strong. And, you know, if, if the whole emotional resonance of the story, and I'm not saying that was the case for this one specifically, but if the whole emotional resonance of the story is the shock, you better shock me. Um, and, you know, finding out you're in the matrix is not a big shock right now, but to, this is a, um, from 2005, this story. Sure. Well, um, and to that point, it was almost a lesser shock than the initial shock. I mean, maybe it's because I'm kind of like obsessed with space and cosmology, but uh, the fact that they were so beyond even the plane of the galaxy with no real hope of getting back to me, that was terrifying. Like, holy shit. Like all these people that just wind up in the middle of the galactic void, but they formed a space station out of their ships and they're just having to live together now. Like that's a really interesting premise to me. Yeah. But then it's almost like, yeah, the simulation thing, is a nice little horrifying gotcha moment, but less interesting, actually. Yeah, let me just say, like, having read the story, I mean, the um, the the um, virtual reality thing is is very is really sort of an afterthought in the story, and what the the story really focuses on is just what you're talking about, just the the scale of the cosmos and you know the majesty of of seeing it and. You know, it's really about capturing that emotion of like, wow, space is really, really big and really, really beautiful and really, really dangerous. And mm. I feel like that's what the what a lot of times you can do in fiction that is really hard to do mm -hmm. on in television. Um, and how it how it plays out in the story is that this this um you know sargasso of space kind of thing. It's 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 all you know all all aliens have gotten caught in it. And so this whole station was all built by aliens, and that's why it's also like weird and alien and creepy. And he's actually the first human to ever wind up there, and so that's why they're they have to sort of break the news to him gently, uh, because you know there's no you know it's just way too shocking, way way too big of a shock to just like wake him up and be like you're on, you're among the aliens now. Um, mm, that's pretty fascinating. And, yeah, and that's a cool story. So, sorry. But that's why it worked too, is that they, they did a really good job of sort of juxtaposing that, that big plot point with the, the sense of isolation that he feels. And I mean, how sad is this guy? Like, so the, the, the spider, the, the alien lady, she's mining his memories for something he's going to find comforting. And she has to go back to a, a random sexual encounter four years ago to find a meaningful human connection for this guy. This is his mm. life. This is, this is, um, and that's why the sex scene is important. Like this is, this is his human contact. This is his connection and what he needs because he drifts through space for a living. Um, and so they, they really ramp up that sense of isolation by making him personally isolated before he even gets there. And now he's completely disconnected from everything. Yeah. That's a really cool story. It makes you kind of wish, like Dave said, that they had, uh, they had taken more time with this one to, to get all that in. Um, cause I, I didn't, so Dave, from the story, in the written story, you're saying none of his crewmates are there with him. That's all simulation that they're there. Uh, I don't rem, I don't remember. I don't, I don't think, 
I I th- I think it's like in the now see now it's I'm getting confused between the story and the show but I don't I think he's the only survivor. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, see that that to me is a better story and that's kind of the way I took it when I was watching it I took it as oh he's the only one his crewmates are all really dead but then uh then when Aaron said she pointed out that that his crewmate says to him like don't you see her don't you see her well why would she why would the spider lady make the simulation like call her out like that's <laughs> so I guess they weren't going for that in the in the in the visual ver- in the version that we watched. I mean, in the story, it starts out and they're they're trying to wake up the the woman, the navigator, and she keeps freaking out, and they keep having to put her back to sleep and doing it over and over again, and that's what sets up that whole idea. But now I don't remember if that was if she was really there or if that was part of the simulation or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I took it as it was part of the simulation until Aaron pointed out that she. That she says, "Oh, don't you see the spider lady like that? That that doesn't jibe anymore." Mm-hmm. But you know, overall, a pretty <laughs> successful little short film uh, mm-hmm. or episode because it was, I think, on IMDb rated number one out of all of them. So for good reason. I mean, it was just beautiful too. You know, good setup, good twist. It probably could have been a little better, but you know, solid. Yeah, I just think it should have been longer. I mean, you know, but I think I think they did a very creditable job. In 17 minutes to, to tell this story. Um, yeah, I think I think it's funny. I think we're focusing a lot on the um, all the problems and the questions and the things we don't understand. But what I came away with from watching all of these was that I was just astounded by it. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. It was like, uh-huh. you know, I'm a huge fan of 1950s, 1960s science fiction, written science fiction stories, short stories. And I've read thousands of them and i just love them because they're just like we're just gonna do this and it's gonna be really different and it's gonna freak people out and that's what i felt like this this anthology was but it was just it was done like beyond my wildest dreams of how any when i was a kid i'd read all this stuff and uh and i would think oh wouldn't it be cool if they could do this on tv and then you would watch something on tv where they tried to and it's like no they just can't pull it off it just looks goofy there's just like somebody in a suit and it just looks really stupid but uh, but this stuff, the the visuals were so stunning, and it was so well done that I was I just found the whole show completely astounding. Well, and this is why I mean I've always said that they should do a anthology show adapting short stories, and they should do it in animation because, you know, like if you build a set like for the Expanse, you know, you can use that ship set for thirty episodes, but you can't do that for an anthology show. So it just makes sense to me to you know that you can still do amazing visuals in animation much less expensively. I mean, I, I think animation mm-hmm. is still really expensive, but it's, you know, not compared to like actually building a ship set, you know? Um, right. So I think animation is just a really natural, you know, form to, to do this kind of anthology science fiction storytelling. Yeah. Real quick question for you, Dave. Um, will we have a, a little time before it's over to just kind of run through rapid fire each of these and just give like our hot takes or anything or like uh, the ones we like, cause there's a lot we still haven't really talked about. Yeah, well, I want to. I really want to talk about Zima Blue because that was my favorite episode. And let's see how we're doing for time um, cool. at the end. Um, but yeah, well, we can try to. We'll. I'll do a little wrap up thing. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about Zima Blue, uh, which I said, as I said, was my favorite episode. And I, as I said, the visual aesthetic I thought was just wonderful in this, and just the idea I thought was so interesting. So the the premise is that there's this artist, and he has started doing these canvases which are just the color blue, this color called Zima blue, bigger and bigger and bigger. And he's like, as someone mentioned, painting the asteroids blue and stuff like that. And 
Um, so the reporter character who's sort of the, our point of view into the story is like, why is he so obsessed with blue? And everyone's wondering that. And it turns out that he had started his life as a robot that cleans the swimming pool. And the blue color was all he saw all day that he was cleaning. And then he got augmented and augmented with biology and stuff and eventually turned into this cyborg artist. But um, for his final performance, he returns to the swimming pool, uh, you know, where he was first uh, living. And uh, I just thought everything about that was just so interesting and moving and beautiful and thought provoking. And my one issue with this, again, I was, I, I watched the episode and it ends with no um, re emotional reaction from the reporter, from the point of view character, which I thought was really, really strange and, and just felt very abrupt. And I was like, there's no way that's how it was in the story. And so I went and read the story and, and, and yeah, in fact, like there's this whole subplot with the reporter and like, you know, they have this argue, this sort of philosophical argument and she ends up making a big change in her life at the end. And again, I think I, they just didn't have time to include that. But I, I thought that this would have been perfect for me if, if it had ha had some sort of emotional reaction from her at the end that was, that sort of hit us. Yeah. Um, but overall, I, I thought it was wonderful. Um, Aaron, what do you, what'd you think? I loved it. Uh, it was super original. It was one of the episodes that actually did what I think good science fiction does, which is, you know, sort of tweak some interesting philosophical questions. Um, one thing that maybe you didn't mention in your summary is that when he starts out as a painter, he's originally painting murals of the cosmos. There's no blue square at all. He's, he's painting the universe and he's doing this amazing job of painting the universe because he's fascinated by the enormity of the cosmos and the complexity of the cosmos. And then this blue square comes, it starts out really small and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it basically kind of mirrors his, uh, definition of meaning and, and where his definition of meaning starts out as vast and unfathomable. He gradually finds more and more meaning in what is small and proximate and understandable. Um, and that that's interesting to me. And so he chooses to deconstruct himself at the end to go back to this state where he understands what is in front of him. And it's a very small sphere in a small universe. It's just these little squares of blue. And he can take pride in a job well done. And he can kind of be master of his universe as opposed to an insignificant speck in the cosmos. So there's a, there's a lot of meat there for this mm -hmm. for this really short uh, and, and it questions the nature of, of, of existence and, and, and all the rest of it. And that's good science fiction to me. Well, right. It's almost to me like a mirror image of Flowers for Algernon, where mm. losing, your Kinda, higher yeah. cognitive, losing your higher cognitive functions is a horror in Flowers for Algernon. But in this, it's a sort of a release. And, you know, you've done you've thought everything that you can think or you've done everything you want to do. And now you just want to become a simpler thinking organism and just exist in a constant state of flow where you're just doing some task and it's it's like all you want to do and you're totally happy doing it yeah um so and so i thought yeah i thought that was really fascinating um rafael what'd you think i agree i thought it was thematically the most interesting of the whole bunch and really kind of lingers with you because um you know in any artistic field you're always striving for credibility or respectability or, or even fame on some level. And the, the, the thought that there's really just never enough or you'll never be happy and that you'd actually, in fact, be happier just doing something completely simple or mundane. You know, I mean, that resonates because, you know, sometimes you just 
really are happiest with the simple things. But, you know, we always kind of have that carrot at the end of the stick, thinking that there's more happiness to be had, but maybe not. Tom, what'd you think? Yeah, I, I agree with all you guys. I, I, um, it kind of, when Raphael was just saying there, be happier doing something simpler, I was thinking how sometimes I look at my dog and think, <laughs> maybe that wouldn't be such a bad life, you know? <laughs> um, I'll go run around and bite things and poop on things and, <laughs> and you can, you can earn the money and do all this other stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I thought it was really cool. I, I thought it was an interesting thing too that it was a, it started out as almost like a, uh, or didn't start out, but the kind of the germ of the story is, is almost like a, a goofy, one of these goofy stories where it's like, oh, this is actually a, a pool cleaning robot that, uh, that got all these things added onto it and became something more. That's almost like a goofy idea when you think about it. Like the, the most brilliant artist in the world is act, in the universe is actually a pool cleaning robot that's just been augmented. Um, but then they, they did go further and further and, and bring something deeper out of it. So, uh, that's, that's that's actually it. a really that's a really interesting observation, Tom. That this this could have been a stupid two minute, funny, thing, you know, like, but it 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 just becomes high art, you know, yeah, like, mm-hmm. yeah, it, you know, it becomes high art by just yeah, like taking the concept and pushing it so far where, the initial concept would not necessarily be, that, promising, you know. And you know, to your to your earlier point, David, I bet you that was a conversation that they had at some point, whether or not to put that little epilogue at the end with the reporter. Because, you know, from kind of like a film perspective, I could see them thinking that essentially we're the audience there witnessing his last act, you know, just like the people in the stands. And it's almost better to just kind of see it and then be like, wow, what did I just see? And like now we're in their position, we have to think about it without having essentially the theme told to us by the end. I mean, I, I can see how like some people might've thought that's just a little too much. Like it's better just to essentially end it and let people have it linger. Yeah. I wouldn't have liked to see a whole epilogue story there, like a, a frame story wrapping up there, but I would have liked to see, like Dave says, some kind of emotional reaction um, from the reporter, even if it was just a, a few seconds shot, you know, mm-hmm. of, uh, of where you could see kind of a facial expression or something. A single tear. well because but i I feel like these episodes are sort of a marriage of visual people primarily visual people and primarily storytelling people and those are at cross purposes to some extent and i feel like a lot of these things the sort of visual people were like oh it would be really cool you know i could do some great visuals with this and me as a more of a storytelling person i'm like yeah but i just like the visuals were cool but i didn't have an emotional reaction at the end that as a as a person who cares about storytelling that I would want to have. Sure. But like depending on, I think depending on which one of those spheres you relate to more, you could have, you know, wildly divergent reactions to these episodes. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to go. I mean, it could have been really interesting, honestly, to see the audience just kind of not really get it or understand the point and then just kind of walk away bored. They're onto the next thing, you know? Yeah, I I actually like that they resisted the temptation to do a send up of pretentious art because that must have been tempting, especially when he gets to the point where all he does is blue squares. Right. Um, all right. I did want to so, so on the subject of um, purely visual things. I did. I that was kind of a reaction I had to this episode called Fish Night, where there are these two salesmen and they kind of get stuck in the desert and they see these ghost fish, 
And then one of the guys gets out of the car and is going to swim with the fish because he's never been to the ocean before. And my initial reaction is like, what are you doing? You're going to get eaten by a ghost shark. And then he gets eaten by a ghost shark. And then that's the end. And so it was kind of like, well, you know, I was underwhelmed. But I feel like um, what this story needed was a frame story. So I'm just going to like quickly like rewrite this story. So what what it should have been is you have these two guys going through the desert. Their car breaks down. The old guy wants to walk out. The young guy wants to wait for help. And the old guy says, no, we have to leave because let me tell you the story about what happened to my old partner years ago. He got eaten by a ghost shark. <laughs> and the young guy doesn't believe him, but is uh, sufficiently unsettled that he agrees to walk out. And then on their walk out, they, um, you know, he gets increasingly freaked out that maybe he's like seeing lights that may be ghosts or maybe that's just headlights in the distance. Who knows? And then at the end, we get some clear after they're over their highs and we get some clear you know, um, indication that there really are ghost fish swimming around this desert. Uh, and I think that, yeah, that would have sort of wrapped it up in a story in a way that the current version doesn't really do. Well, let me um, ask you this. Um, do you think the story was uh, metaphorical? Because I, I'm kind of inclined to think it was. Like, I think he died in the middle of the night and him joining the sea of ghost fish was essentially... Uh, illustration of that but i don't think that he literally you know went up into the sky as an alive human being started swimming through the air and was swallowed i mean i think essentially that as he's dying uh we start to see the fish appear and then like as he's able to actually join them that's when he's dead because otherwise the story doesn't really work for me at all but if it's that then it does and i like well, it. why does the young guy die there are some hints throughout i think i mean basically um the, the older salesman warns him not to tire himself out because they've got no rations. They've got nothing to eat or drink and it's really hot out there. But the, you know, so while the older guy is sitting in the shade resting all day long, the younger guy is standing around pacing, trying to find help, you know, huh. and it's like basically he's lying down in the back seat of the car and, you know, we don't know how long they've been there by this point. I, I just think it's kind of a more, for me, maybe I'm just making this up, but I think it's more interesting if he passed away in the night and this is him joining the fish sea in the sky. Because otherwise, the whole thing is just so damn convenient. It's like the guy mentions, oh, right. you know, do you ever wonder about dead fish that used to be here? And then all of a sudden we see them. But no one in history has ever seen dead fish floating in the ocean. <laughs> I think it's because he died. But then, then why does he get eaten by a shark at the end? I, and then, and, and then there's ghost blood. It's just I just didn't understand this story at all. And to me, the the sort of uh, the dialogue leading up to that point, where um, the old guy is like, the traveling salesman is a you know it's going to be extinct soon, and the the young guy's like, no, you just need to have the right attitude. And so he has this exuberant attitude, and he wants to try new things, and he's really excited. And then he swims off and gets eaten by a ghost shark. I was like, so the moral of the story is, don't try yeah. these things. I mean, <laughs> I, I do. You guys are all working too hard on this. <laughs> I, I think. I mean, Raphael, your your description was brilliant, and it probably comes down to the fact that you you've done like thirty. Uh, movies, TV episodes, etc. But uh, but uh, and I'm just I, trying desperately to make it interesting. I guess I didn't like it that much. So. Yeah, yeah. I think I think being a huge fan of like 1950s, 1960s, 1970s science fiction, I just kind of took it as oh, it's a cool story about two. It's a it's a cool vignette about two uh, two salesmen who get stuck, and then this weird thing they exp they experience this weird thing, and that's all it is. It's just kind of like. <laughs> Here, here's this thing, and I was like, oh, that was interesting to watch. I didn't take it as a story. I didn't expect it to be one. 
I didn't expect there to be kind of any resonance to it. I wasn't like thrilled, but you know, I, w- I didn't walk away going, that's the coolest thing I ever watched in my life, but I thought it was a cool addition to the, to the series and I enjoyed it kind of for what it was. Oh yeah. I mean, it's kind of like to the, what I was saying earlier. If something is short enough, I think it can get by with the nonsensical twist and just kind of be like a, a tone piece basically that sits you th- with you, you know, or a tone poem or whatever. Yeah. That's what I took it as. And I thought that the, um, I thought that, that where this, came from and, and where this whole thing lives is that the the writer of it was just sitting around one day and thinking about that like i wonder if there were you know if there what if there were ghosts of like prehistoric because these this is an ocean here where we are in this desert this was an ocean here billion millions of years ago or however long ago so i wonder if there could be you know if there could be ghosts of people i wonder if there could be ghosts of that and it wouldn't be cool to like show that and i think that's all this was i don't mm. think there was supposed to be any kind of deep meaning to it and as much as, you know, I, I didn't find it exciting, I didn't dislike it either specifically. Um, and I think it goes back to my point about being a little bit more deliberate about the order in which you see these. Because one of the things that I think they did reasonably well um, is have a, a lot of diversity in terms of the types of stories that were being told. I would have liked to see a little mm-hmm. bit less military sci-fi. I do like military sci-fi, but I, I think a third is a little bit heavy. Maybe maybe a quarter um, would be okay. But yeah. they, they did a pretty good job of spreading it around. And I think, but I think if you had the order that I had, where it really stacked that up front, then and then you have this like long run of all the comedy ones, and then you have. Uh, you know, some of these shorter, not quite sure what just happened there pieces. I think if they'd done a better job of ordering those, then it would have been a bit of a palate cleanser between some of the heavier ones. Quick question for you, Aaron. Um, Because, you know, granted, I I really do like the military sci-fi stuff, so I probably wouldn't have minded. But um, I was wondering which six you're categorizing, because I'm only really seeing Lucky 13, Secret War, and Shapeshifters as military. Yeah, so we didn't we didn't get into that, but actually I didn't uh, categorize it as military sci-fi as such. I categorized it as uh, military style combat element. So shapeshifters, okay. Lucky Thirteen, uh, the Secret War, which we haven't talked about, which was one of my favorites, although I can't even tell you why. Sunny's Edge, um, and Sucker of Souls. Oh, okay, I thought you might be throwing suits in there too, just because they kind of have like the Starship Troopers style suits. But sorry, did I not mention suits? Yes, suits, uh, definitely okay. suits. Uh, Blind Spot was a bit of a I, I vacillated on that one, but I decided that's just a heist, so it's not really military style. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. It's not that scientific, my science. Oh, it's all good. I was just curious. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we're like pretty much out of time. I don't know. I don't want this to go too long, but I did promise Raphael some sort of lightning round or something. Um, how about I'll just how about I'll just try going through this and each person say one sentence and make okay. it like a reasonably sized sentence, not like a Proust kind of sentence uh, <laughs> about each uh, each thing. So uh, I'll start at the bottom on my list here. Alternate histories I just found painful to watch. Uh, Raphael. Amusing, but wore out its welcome. Tom? Yeah, I'll agree with Raphael. I liked it. I thought it was an interesting idea, but it went a little bit long. Aaron? Decent concept, not funny enough. Okay, the dump. uh, I knew exactly what was going to happen, and I felt bad for the government guy, and I thought it was just gross (laughs) and off-putting when he was killed. Uh, Aaron? 
I'd like to understand who drops their drawers to take a pee. <laughs> uh, Tom. This is probably my least favorite of the whole bunch, and I'm not sure why. I think, like you said, it would just kind of gross me out. Raphael. Uh, my least favorite as well. Nice animation, but just kind of a waste of time. Okay, three robots. There was one line that made me laugh. I can't remember what it was now. Uh, but overall, I just thought it was kind of silly, and I would I could just watch a Pixar movie, and it would do pretty much everything better. Uh, Tom? Uh, I, this is one of those kind of slice-of-life vignettes that I, that I thought was pretty funny and fun to watch. Uh, Aaron? Uh, I love cats, but that that's too far for me. The, the the sentient cats thing is just, I don't know, it's too obvious in a way. Yeah, Raphael. That, that's a writer with cats. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, that's the second sentence you're disqualified. <laughs> uh, Raphael. Um, I liked it overall, the tone of it. Uh, I did not care for the cat twist, and it kind of left me scratching my head in places. <laughs> no cat, pun intended. Um <laughs> Uh, Lucky 13, uh, I thought was pretty well done, but I feel like I've seen this story a million times in a World War II context and putting it in space didn't make it stand out for me. Uh, Tom. I honestly don't remember this one. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's one <laughs> sentence. Uh, Aaron. <laughs> um, I really liked it and would have liked to see it more realized. I think it had potential for, for more spread. Raphael. I loved it, and I thought putting it in space made all the difference. And man, I would just love to see a feature out of that. Just give me all the deep space military sci fi I can get. Uh, Sucker of Souls, uh, I thought was pretty good, but I thought the ending was really cheap and cruel and kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, Raphael. It was fun, and um, it was just really funny. And uh, if I can. Give a shout-out. My friend Jonathan Cahill voiced one of the guys, so that was fun. Oh. Uh, Tom? Yeah, I thought it was fun and funny. I also didn't really care for the ending much. Aaron? I felt like I'd seen it a million times. Yeah. Uh, blind Spot. Uh, uh, I thought it was cool action, um, but the retro stuff felt overdone, and I feel like I could just watch a million anime movies for this kind of stuff, and I was hoping for more serious science fiction in this show. Uh, Aaron, which one was Blind Spot again? Was that the cyborg the, the train robbery? Yeah, the, uh, the the cyborg chase. I don't know. It was okay. Uh, Tom, yeah, I thought it was really fun. I liked the interplay between the different characters, and I uh, and I thought the ending was kind of cool. The end twist was kind of cool. Uh, the end twist being that they're all still alive. Right. Yeah, I didn't understand how in this world you would not know that going into a potentially fatal mission, but uh, yeah, we'll, leave, we'll leave that aside. Uh, Raphael. Fast and Furious with robots, what's not to like? But it was a little forgettable. Not much to it. Okay, Good Hunting. Uh, this is the fox woman becomes a clockwork, like, revenge machine. Uh, I thought that this uh, was really artistic and beautiful, all the jumps through time kind of made me like lose connection to the emotion of the story. Uh, I feel like this is probably an amazing short story, but as a anim piece of animation, I was a little underwhelmed by it. Um, Raphael. Um, I enjoyed the steampunk 
angle and the the Huli Jing mythology. It was interesting, but it wasn't fantastic. Uh, Aaron. Uh, I loved it. Maybe it's the fantasy author in me. I think if they had come up, they, they didn't need the rape backstory. It, I loved the idea of a mythical creature sort of taking her revenge on the age of the machines through being becoming a machine. I thought it was great. And it, if they had mm. just excised that cancer, it would have been near perfect for me. Tom. Yeah, I thought it was really fun. It was a kind of a cool um, Eastern martial arts type of thing with a lot of fantasy in it. And I, I liked it. Okay, Suits, this is the Farmers with Mechs Fight Aliens. Uh, I found this surprisingly emotionally affecting, and I thought the action was cool. I wish that it had been more serious science fiction than this kind of, like, 1930s American farmers in space kind of thing. Um, But overall, I enjoyed it perfectly fine. Uh, Tom? I I liked it because it was uh, kind of a retro type of thing. I, I really, I don't know, for some reason that made me feel more comfortable. I, I enjoyed it and I liked the, uh, I liked most of the characters and I thought the action was really fun and I, and I liked the end twist as well. Uh, Raphael. Yeah. I love the Starship Trooper style action and the twist at the end. Um, I like the fact it was part of the Zima blue universe. Aaron. Felt like I'd seen it a million times. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Are there any stories that we haven't really covered now that I missed here. Um, we didn't talk oh, about Secret, the Secret, Secret War. War. Secret the War. Secret well, War, yeah. Let's spend a little more time on Secret War, because that was, like, Aaron, you said that was one of your favorites? Yep, one of my top three. So, and so like I said, I, 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 I couldn't why even tell you favorites? why. I, I couldn't even tell you why. I loved the sensibility of it. I loved that this, this it's so Russian and so bleak, and, you know, it's... It's these guys in the snow, and it's just the, the the brutality of the of the violence that they come across in this village, and how grim they are about the whole thing, and determined, and they just kind of move forward. And we don't know what they're facing straight away, but we know it's going to be bad because we've seen the state of these corpses. I, I love the the sacrifice in it. I love the sort of trying to clean up after the mistakes of the republic, and feeling like, um, and you know, being afraid that once they find out that. It's actually um, their own their own people, their own Soviet military people that are responsible for this demon invasion. If they bring that back to Moscow, are they just going to get their throats cut? I just really liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty fantastic. I mean, I think for starters, it was possibly the best looking out of the whole bunch. Uh, as, as Aaron said, I love the mystery kind of setup as they go deeper and deeper into the Siberian wilderness to fight this thing. Um, yeah. I kind of love the Hellboy aspect of the occult in World War II. And, um, yeah, I just love the last stand aspect. I mean, the, the idea that sometimes the people that save the world, no one even ever knows. You know? Yeah, Tom? Yeah, I loved it too. I, I thought it felt like um, like a, a hyperbole version of Band of Brothers. Like I love that uh, that whole aesthetic of they they know they're doomed, but they're just going to keep trying as hard as they can, and they don't you know they don't kind of flinch away from it. And uh, and yeah, yeah, I agree about the Hellboy side of it too. The the World War II occult occult angle was really cool. Yeah, I thought this was pretty cool. Thinking on it now, I'm not sure why I don't have it ranked higher. I mean, I did. I liked the idea that because of the this is going on contemporaneously with the Battle of Stalingrad, and that's why they're kind of on their own and they can't get reinforcements really. Um, and I liked the just the image at the end of all the bombers flying overhead and just completely 
you know, obliterating this entire valley and every everything in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, f- I feel like of all of them, this one did arguably the most effective job of creating mood. Yeah, and I, and I felt, you know, I felt the tragedy of, of the loss of these people's lives and everything at the end. So, yeah, that was, it was pretty good. Definitely wanted more of that one. I would watch a whole movie about that. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think sort of like... Russian soldiers fighting monsters in the Siberian wilderness is sort of an underexplored uh, <laughs> territory. <laughs> um, all right, cool. So, uh, Raphael, I guess I did want to also just, I mentioned in the intro that you have a uh, sort of Starship Troopers style uh, show you're working on. You want to just quickly tell us a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Um, basically, we just started shooting three days ago, but it's called Salvage Marines, and it's based on the Necrospace series of sci-fi books by Sean Michael Argo, um, starring Casper Van Dien. So essentially, uh, I know I brought up Starship Troopers already a few times, but um, it's kind of a spiritual successor in a lot of ways. I think fans of that will enjoy it a lot. Yeah, Casper Van Dien, in case anyone doesn't know, played Johnny Rico in um, Paul Verhoeven's uh, Starship Troopers movie. Mm-hmm. Cool. So when uh, when will that be out, or how can people watch it? Or oh, um, well, right now uh, we're basically shooting twelve episodes over the next six months. So um, the distribution plan isn't in place just yet, but I'm sure it'll end up either on Sci-Fi, Netflix, Hulu, or Amazon probably in like a year, year and a half. Who knows? All right, cool. So keep an eye out for that. Again, it's called Salvage Marines. Um, all right, so why don't we uh, wrap this up? So uh, anyone have any uh, any final thoughts at the end here? So how about uh, Aaron? Final thoughts. Final thought is I would really like to see a season two of this. And I would, I would like, I would love to think that the, the, the showrunners take some of the criticism and there has been a fair bit on board and, uh, and ramp up their game for season two. Yeah. Uh, Tom, final thought. I would definitely love to see another, another season of this and I would devour it just as fast as I did this one. And Raphael, final thought. You know, not for nothing, but I thought that sex scene in Aquila Rift was one of the best ones I've seen in a long time. You know, boobs, bum, and all. <laughs> champagne boobs, no, no less. Yes, champagne. I seriously, yeah. there. I have to say, they they paid some serious attention to detail in the boobs in some of these episodes, and the beating of the champagne on her on her boobs in this was was, was quite exquisite. And the other one, like as much as I hated the witness, there's that moment where she slams the door right at the end, and I'm like, how much time did they spend on that precise jiggle of her left tip. <laughs> I guarantee it was a lot. Yeah. And they were just like sitting around and I just picture these two dudes sitting there with like fast food wrappers all around them and it's three o'clock in the morning and they're like, got it. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so like I said, I mean, I'm always saying that there should be a show like this and I'm glad that they did it. And I would definitely recommend everyone, if you haven't watched it, go check out Zima Blue and Sunny's Edge and Beyond the Aquila Rift. And, um, yeah, I, I definitely hope they do another season. I hope, you know, it has more, maybe, yeah, like a more diverse, more, you know, sort of grown up aesthetic to it. And again, I have all sorts of science fiction stories that I love that I would be happy to recommend uh, okay. if anyone's interested. I was just going to say, let's let's get some David Barr Kirtley stories <laughs> and, in there and, from uh, and some of Empire them, of Dreams and Miracles. Some of them might even be written by women. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so yeah, definitely, uh, you know, get in touch with us. Uh, we have uh, we have uh, ideas, um, but you're not going to hear any more ideas from us now because we are all out of time. So we're going to wrap things up there. 
And so we've been speaking with Aaron Lindsay, Raphael Jordan, and Tom Grenzer. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay, Raphael Jordan, and Tom Grenzer for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Jim Charanis, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Christian Kerman, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.